This is episode 131 of the Landscape Photography Show, and before we get into today's episode, I want to say thanks to our sponsor, Nature Photographers Network. If you're not involved in Nature Photographers Network yet, you should. Why? Well, out of Nature Photographers Network, you're going to get access to a lot of professional photographers who can help you with image critiques, you can ask them anything, you can join live webinars with them, and you can interact one-on-one with them. If you paid for private sessions with professional photographers like our on Nature Photographers Network, many of which who have been on this show, like Alex Noriega, William Neal, TJ Thorne, Sarah Marino, so many involved in that site, you would be paying thousands of dollars and you can get access to all of that for just $49 a year. If you use the code LPS10, you can get 10% off of that and go through that process of just enjoying photography, loving your photography, getting feedback on your photography. Again, you can go to naturephotographers.network, sign up for a year and use the code LPS10 to get 10% off of your yearly membership there. You're not going to regret doing it. In today's episode, we're talking with Nick Page about his photography in the past few years. You know, if you remember back to several years ago, we talked with Nick even before the pandemic happened, and we talked with him about his photographic style, how he got into photography, and then the pandemic hit, and Nick kind of went through this, and he talks about this in the podcast, through this rediscovery phase of his photography. You know, what is he like? What does he enjoy? What does he love about the process and we get into all of that during this episode plus much much more the landscape photography show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography it's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos so sit back relax and enjoy the show Hey, what's up, guys? We're here with Nick Page. Nick is joining us from his home studio in the beautiful state of Washington that I'm just assuming, Nick, like from your images, that it is beautiful. I've never even been to Washington, so. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I live in the southeastern corner of Washington State, which is very different than what most people picture. When they picture Washington, they picture lots of like rainforests and Mount Rainier and waterfalls and stuff. But I live in the eastern, southeastern part which is more known for just like tons of agriculture. But I'm really close to an area called the Palouse, which is kind of like uh, the Pacific Northwest Tuscany, right? Where you got lots of rolling hills and wheat fields and canola fields, um, just a lot fewer people. So, so it's pretty here during certain times of the year and other parts of the year, not so much. It turns into like a barren wasteland after all that wheat has you know, been cut. It's just like rolling hills of dirt which isn't quite as pretty <laughs> it's the best kind of hill it's the yeah. dirt hill the dirt hill well you're from washington anybody who's watching live let us know where you're watching from and if you're listening to the podcast thank you so much for listening nick the last time we spoke on the podcast um and, and you're the first repeat get on guest on the podcast so welcome in pretty much um, makes me a big deal pretty much pretty much you know my office is mahogany, so that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I just wanted to ask, that was pre-COVID, and a lot has happened since then, obviously. What's COVID? I haven't heard what of that. What is that thing? What is that virus? Yeah. Um, what, what did COVID do to you as a photographer, and, and how did it change your approach to photography? Yeah. There's a loaded question. Uh, so COVID, well, so, so my photography, it it changed it in the way that it kind of, it deflated it a little bit. Because, you know, I'm, I'm terrible about this, but it's true and being 100% transparent that, like, you know, when you have big, crazy things happening in the world, suddenly my pretty pictures don't feel quite as important as they once did. Suddenly you start thinking more about like, you know, feeding your family. And like, I hope I, 
hope I can put my kid through college. You know, you start at, thinking about some of those bigger things, especially when there's wars and, and pandemics and all of this stuff. Suddenly I wasn't feeling quite as motivated to get out. But it did change my photography in the way that like international travel became a big stress and and just travel in general became super stressful and not, you know, and it's more expensive and stuff. So it did make me shoot closer to home and it made me reevaluate, reevaluate like when I'm out on a trip, like, do I need to eat in restaurants for every meal? Probably not. And do I need to stay in hotels everywhere I go, even though I have like a big fancy pickup with a roof tent and stuff like I started getting a lot more frugal about how I travel. You know, the last workshop that I just did, they the hotels were crazy expensive. We were looking at like 270 a night for a Motel 6, which if you're not familiar with what a Motel 6 is, they'll leave the light on for you. But that's about it because <laughs> there's like they're, they're not the nicest hotels. And like at 270 a night, you know, as a workshop leader trying to make money, it, it cuts into the profits a little bit. So I, I started you know, sleeping in my roof tent, like, you know, I had always intended on doing. And so it changed the way I traveled because I started thinking about, you know, doing it a bit more frugally. Um, I don't even know what the question was anymore, but like, but it's definitely changed like what I shoot and then I shoot a lot more local and it's changed like how I travel because I do it a lot more budget conscious than I once did. And I think that's a good thing because, a person doesn't need to stay in a hotel every single night during the summer months when it's nice outside. Like we should be camping because after all, we are nature photographers and implies that maybe we like nature. So it's, it's encouraged a little bit more of that from me. Yeah. When you stay in a hotel, you like, you turn the light on and you turn on the AC in the hotel and you're like, it's so nice outside. Well, why aren't you out there? Right. Um, exactly. Has it given you a deeper appreciation for your local places, like you were just talking about the southern part of Washington where you're living in, and, and it sounded like, you know, you have a little bit deeper emotional connection to those places now. It does, although I think that, it, you know, it kind of evaluating why I do photography, which like I've been on this soul searching uh, stretch for a little bit now where like I start asking the questions of like, why do I do photography? I can do it. And I'm, I'm pretty decent at taking pretty pictures, but why do I spend so much time and effort doing it and money? And what I've discovered in, in asking those kind of questions is, is it's not so much the place as much as it is the weather. So I've, I've, I've discovered that I'm more of a weather photographer than I am a landscape photographer. I'm more inspired and motivated to get out when, when, you know, I don't know what mother nature is up to, you know, when you have storms rolling through or where you have, you know, big waves approaching a coastline and you get these interesting dynamic weather conditions. That's what excites me. Like, that's when I actually like start like really, you know, researching like what the weather's going to do and all this stuff. That's what really gets me excited more so than I'm going to go to a hill and photograph a mountain. Because that mountain has been the same for millions of years. It's going to be the same for millions of years after that. But the weather that rolls through that, that is a fleeting moment in time. And that's much more exciting and compelling to me because of the, the, the part of that that you have no control over. And as you get better at photography, I feel like you get more excited about the things that you can't control. Because as landscape photographers that we set up on a tripod and we change our perspective and we're in control over everything there comes a point where it starts to feel formulaic unless there's some things that are completely outside of your control. And that's what I get excited about. So this year I've discovered that I'm much more into weather photography. And for that reason, I've been like, you know, taking some amateur meteor, I, I struggle with this word. I know I'm going to say it wrong. Meteorological uh, courses and stuff. It. And I, I see, I'm pretty damn intellectual. Um, uh, I've been taking some amateur courses and learning a lot more about convective storms and, you know, and all of that stuff because it's what excites me. And I find that like when you're learning about stuff that you're excited about it in the end, it's, it uh, serves as a creative 
a creative uh, boost to your photography. So I've been getting really excited about weather, and, and that makes me more excited to get out when the weather conditions are right. And I don't know if I answered your question, but I sure talked a long time. Well, I think you definitely did. And it, it leads to a different question that, that comes to mind is like a lot of people I've seen, especially on social media, getting more into that like storm photography. I think yeah. it was last year when you went out and, and did like a big storm chase across the whole country um, or even just parts of the Midwest and places like that. If somebody wants to tackle that, and add that to what they shoot in the landscape. How do they go about that first? Like, what were your first steps? So, step one: buy life insurance. Yeah, because <laughs> because it's a uh, the most dangerous type of landscape photography. Probably you could argue that you can do because the thing that I know, that I realized quickly about storms in the southern plains is that they are a completely different animal than what I'm used to. Pacific Northwest, we have these cute little storms. Down there, they're just giant, you know, giant storms that just want to kill everything in, in its path, sometimes literally. So it's so super dangerous that you you have to educate yourself or at least be with someone that has that education just so you can do it even remotely safely because it's really easy to put yourself in harm's way when we're talking about, you know, things like extreme lightning, you know, severe lightning storms and tornadoes and some of the the stuff that that those storms can produce is is quite frightening. And if you go in ignorant of the possibilities, you're not only endangering yourself, but you're endangering the people around you. And that's one of the things that that is kind of a bad part of, you know, how people are, how popular it is to go out and storm spot or to storm chase is that the probably the mo the biggest danger out there are other people because you can imagine. And what's crazy is you can go out in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska or nowhere, Oklahoma, out in the way far away from any town and have a traffic jam because there's so many storm chasers out there. And there's nothing more dangerous than when, you know, a tornado is on the ground and it's coming towards a highway and there's a traffic jam and you can't get away because you're on the one road and the traffic is not flowing. What do you do then? So that and you can imagine what it's like to have thousands of distracted drivers that are not looking at the road. They're looking out the window at the storm and it becomes a problem. So the probably the most dangerous thing when storm chasing are other drivers. And so that part's scary. And you just got to have to you have to know, like you always have to have like a escape route, which is crazy. What other type of landscape photography do you know of where you have an escape route? And like before you even enter into this area, you have to already have planned out what's what direction the storm's moving, what roads intersect that, and then what roads will I be able to safely get out? Because not all roads are created equally. Some are paved, some are gravel, some are dirt. And when you have a massive downpour of rain on dirt, they just turn to mud and then you get stuck and then you get ran over by a tornado and that's not good either. So, yeah. So safety. So all that to say, to safety is the first thing that they need to work on. Yeah. Safety and educating yourself on, like, you know, how these storms develop. We had Justin Sneed on the podcast. Who He lives up in Minnesota, but he chases down through the Midwest. Yep. And I was talking to him after the show, and we had just – I lived in West Tennessee. I still do. And we just had, like, this huge front move through. Uh, with derecho winds and all this crazy weather that came through and there were a couple tornadoes and I was like hey man do you make it down there for that and he said no I do not cross the Mississippi River to go shoot storms there's way yeah. too many hills way too many trees visibility is terrible and there's no escape routes anywhere and I was like okay good to know for somebody who's been out trying to capture storms before and like trying to shoot my own area with storms it who taught you that? Like, how did, how did you approach another photographer to be able to learn those things? Uh, so there, there's a guy named Mike Mez, or you might know him as Mike Mezuel II. And he's an incredible, uh, he's an incredible photographer all the way around, but he's really, really good at storm photography. He's also known for his volcano photography. He's a real safe guy. And, and uh, he is incredibly knowledgeable about these storms. And like the first 
couple times I went down, I went down by myself and quickly realized how far out of my element I was. And so I reached out to him and then I just kind of started shadowing him because even though I'm good at photography, I'm not good at, at, you know, the weather side of things. And so he kind of has taken me under my, uh, under his wing and like, I'm just trying to be a, a knowledge sponge around him and trying to pick up on like, you know, why do you chase here instead of here? And why did a storm form here and not over there? Those kind of things. <clears throat> Cause that stuff is really important. But one thing I do want to point out though, is that there's a big difference between being a photographer that, that likes photographing weather and being a storm chaser because a storm chaser, they, they have, a one-track mind, they're after f- seeing a, tor- a tornado. They're just tornado chasers, essentially. And for me, I don't, I don't really care about seeing a tornado. I want to see, I want to see a, a beautiful, dramatic scene with incredible, dramatic skies, but with a decent composition. And that's a completely different thing because a lot of storm chasers, they go out and they have a field and a sky and the sky might have a tornado in it, but it's, there's zero foreground and they don't put any effort into finding composition. Really. They're out to just document a storm for me personally. I, that's not, that's too far in that direction. I'm not there just to witness a storm. I want to happen to have the storm as my subject, but also have a nice composition that, you know, works. And that is really difficult, especially when you're in some random place that you've never been before. You don't know what's there. And, and even if you did know the area, there's no guarantee that there's anything there because I don't know if you've driven through Nebraska or Kansas or Oklahoma, like there's just not a lot there. So it's slim pickings to begin with, even if you knew the place. So that, that challenge is kind of fun in in it's, in its own self, because, you know, there's another thing you're not in control of where the storm's going to be. And so, you know, as you get better at photography, you like start like to start trying to throw yourself little obstacles and hurdles and things to overcome because those things you're not control in control of often are the most liberating creatively. Drove through Kansas once. I'm pretty sure it took me about a year to make it through the entire state. (laughs) It's At least it flat. seemed like you go you go from like Utah, Colorado, Wyoming into Kansas and Nebraska, and you're like, wow, this thing this got really boring really fast. <laughs> um, so we talked about how you changed as a photographer during COVID. In that span of time, it's been about two and a half years now. In that span of time, how did you see photography itself? change and and shift and adjust hmm that's interesting you know i I don't know if it's because of covid or if it's because it's just the the trend that was already in place but there's definitely been a trend towards the smaller scene the more intimate landscape photography um you know every everything in creative in creative land whether we're talking about music or art or photography, um, everything kind of ebbs and flows and has trends. And for example, when I got started, like HDR was still the big thing, you know, Trey Ratcliffe was king of the world and everybody wanted to be like Trey Ratcliffe doing the HDR photography. And then, then it changed from that. And right now the trend that I see things heading towards are small scenes, you know, like everybody's out looking for mud cracks. (laughs) <laughs> or looking for some small little scene to photograph and to tastefully process. And that that's kind of the current trend. And I don't know if that's because that's just kind of what people had available to them because they weren't traveling as much and they're, you know, or if they were, if it's just a reaction to the amount of over-processed, crazy grand landscapes that you tend to see on places like Instagram or back in the day, 500 PX, everything was like, you know, you go over here, you turn the epic knob up to 11, right? That's that's how photography was for about 10 years. And I think that these small scenes are kind of like the palate cleanser to that, where it's kind of like the, you know, things ebb and flow. Grunge came because there was too much hair metal and, and too, too much uh, big hair and, and makeup and hairspray. And so then we got grunge. I think we have small scenes because we had so many epic scenes for so long 
I don't see myself going down that path. I'm going to try to keep the epic alive, but I want to do epic in like a, a tasteful way, which is a fine um, line to walk. I mean, the music that you tend to share on social media, I mean, you're going more the epic route with that music style, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I I like to be excited about stuff, you know, rather than, <laughs> than than like walking through life, hanging your head and being like, oh, there's some mud. I'll think I'll photograph the mud. Click. Nice. <laughs> I'm not I'm not ever going to be that person because never in my once have I been like, holy cow, look at this mud. This these mud cracks are incredible. Like, this, yeah, they're mud cracks. They're pretty cool. But wouldn't it be cooler with like a big storm in the background, bro? You know, that's where I'm coming from. I'm, I'm more, I'm more excited about things that actually excite me. I, I think, will the, will the trend last? Um, I think every trend come as soon as a trend happens, it comes with its own expiration date. <laughs> except for, except for polka. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's an inside joke that only I'm going to get. There's a song called Polka Never Dies. And that's anyway, I really should not tell jokes that only I get. <laughs> but but I think every trend comes with its own expiration date. And I think the intimate landscapes will be will definitely trend for a while. And then they'll slip away. And the same people that have always been doing those intimate landscapes will continue to do intimate landscapes landscapes and they'll always be known for that um but the people that kind of just go with the trends suddenly they won't see you know see mud cracks as quite as exciting as they used to and they'll move on to the next thing maybe it's it's those little uh transparent globes that were really cool on instagram for a week you know where you put the little globe out and you have the sun shining through and everything's upside down in the globe maybe those are the next big thing i don't know maybe i'm gonna pre-order mine for sure yeah i think you should I don't even know what they're called, honestly. You, you got to be ahead of the curve, bro. Yeah, absolutely. You got to predict <laughs> these things when they come at you. When when you see photography trends ebb and flow, like you said, um, I saw during COVID a lot of photographers get kind of overwhelmed um, and, and kind of depressed with a lot of their photography. And maybe... Mm -hmm. Maybe not depressed is the best answer word to use there. Maybe it's more along the lines of fed up with how things were going. Uh, we saw camera companies not be able to produce the amount of cameras that were on order for them. Back orders happened. Um, and, and I think that frustrated a lot of people who do it for, for the gear and, and love that part of the photography itself. The, the, the question I'm getting at is, is there going to be a point we've seen photography kind of on the rise for several years now, when is the tipping point and will, will there be one when it goes the other way and will photography start to die? Well, photography will never die. Photography is going to always be ingrained in you know, being human, especially now that we have these, these things right here, these little flat devices that, you know, take arguably better photos than our big, you know, expensive cameras. As these things get better, photography is only going to be done more and more and more. Will it continue to be done by our big expensive black boxes? I think that there will always be people that use those devices, but I think it's inevitable that there's going to be fewer of them simply, simply because these things we already have, they're smaller, they're, even though they're expensive, they're cheaper and it's easy, you know, and I think the the barrier for entry and the the um, skill and ability needed to do do photography well is only going to keep lowering. You know, that hurdle is getting shorter and shorter to where, you know, even even our 75 year old grandparents can like easily step over that hurdle just by picking one of these up, opening the phone app and taking a photo. And it looks pretty good. I think that fewer people are probably going to take it as um, serious as we do, where we're, they're dumping the kind of money that we do into photography. And I think it's going to change, but I think it's always going to be a thing. Um, you know, and also like, you know, outdoor recreation in general has been climbing like crazy lately. And I think that's, you know, personally why I probably shot 
quite a bit less during 2020, 2021, simply because there was just so many people out, like especially during the summer months where, you know, during 2020, about the only thing that you could do is go outside and go camping. And because everything indoors was shut down. So the outdoors was just flooded with all these people. And it kind of crowded out some of the people like me that, you know, I, I go call me crazy, but I go out in nature to be get away from people, not to go like, you know, just let's just move the city into the into the forest. I don't like that. I would I'm I'm too much of a loner. So I don't want to go into a forest just to be surrounded by people. So I think there was some people like me that got kind of crowded out of nature there for a while. But I think that as the outdoor recreation continues to gain in its popularity, there's going to be more and more photographers. It's just a matter of whether they're going to be using this little thin block box or our big expensive $4,000 black ones. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And I think that we will see more of it move that direction. Like even myself, if I'm filming a video for YouTube, yeah, I'm it's really hard. Phone. I mean, these things do a better and better job and it starts to be really difficult to justify packing my video camera around when this does pretty good and it's way lighter and it's, I've already got it. And like, you don't have to do any editing. It's just and, 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 and I think it's only going to get more so that way. I think it even begs the question for a lot of people who maybe want to do photography, even if it is just side income and doing it a little bit, maybe selling some prints here and there at a local art show with so much information, so much technology being more accessible and more affordable is photography even like a viable career anymore. And will it trend that direction? I mean, if you're into selling prints, <clears throat> there's a lot of competition out there. But the difference is that not everybody is going to produce nice prints. You know, not everybody knows how to post-process properly. Now, there's a lot of competition out there, but, like, I I don't know if it's just that my eye has um, has gotten better or whatever, but when I go to, like, the local coffee shop or, you know, when I'm traveling and I see prints in a gallery on the wall, I can still critique them pretty well. And it's usually the difference maker is not the camera that they were using. It's the post-processing that they did or overdid or underdid, you know, I think that as people get more and more spoiled by how easy the easy the technical side is and how capable our cameras are, they tend to get a little bit more lazy with the post-processing side. So there, for a while anyways, there's going to be that differentiator, that's another hard word, um, that's going to be post-processing because not everybody is willing to put in the time to learn it. And a lot, so many people are like, they learn Lightroom and then they call it a day. And granted, Lightroom is pretty powerful, but it's, it's not anywhere nearly as powerful as Photoshop. So like, there's always going to be that differentiator with the post-processing ability, I think. What does somebody need to know if they've reached that limit in Lightroom and they kind of see it like, okay, I've done this so many times, hand over foot. What's mm -hmm. the next challenge? Like what, where do I go? when I go into Photoshop, because Lightroom, like you said, is so powerful. We can basically, a lot of the photos, even I edit, like, I'm like, yeah. okay, this, this is a good edit. Like, this is a good edit. I don't even know if I have to use Photoshop. Now, if I do use Photoshop, it always looks a little bit better after I get done using it. But if somebody wants to make that jump, what do they need to do? Well, like in one of my most recent videos, I, re I talk about how you learn Photoshop the same way you eat an elephant, one bite at a time. So, you know, especially like as easy to learn and as intuitively laid out as Lightroom is, most people, once they learn Lightroom, they never really feel comfortable leaving it anymore because it becomes their little safe place where they know how it works and they know all the tools. And then you have Photoshop it is almost intentionally laid out in a difficult to learn manner just to keep the, you know, to, to keep the plebs out of their out of their sophisticated little app, you know, and I feel like it's almost intentionally hard to learn. So the, the thing is, you just have to learn it one little bit at a time. So for me, the first things that I learned were like, OK, the 
the clone stamp tool or the content aware fill abilities when I shoot a panorama and I need to fill those little odd empty spaces or like, you know, it's so much faster for getting rid of sensor dust. Sensor dust is just like boop and it's done. And then you do it in Lightroom, you go boop, and then you wait three seconds for it to render, and then it picks a spot, and then that spot was stupid, and then you have to move it. And then it's the the ability to the spot healing brush in, in Photoshop blows away the Lightroom one. So it, it, the very first thing you should always learn is the spot healing brush in Photoshop simply because it's a time saver. But then you start to learn that like in Lightroom, they have they're starting to add things like you can select the sky now. And you can darken the sky. But the problem is it's not a great selection of the sky. It's, it's, it's a pretty good selection of the sky, but it's not a good selection of the sky. But it's good enough for them, you know. And that, and so many of the little tools in Lightroom are, like, almost what you need, but not quite. Like, so if you use them tastefully, you can kind of get away with it. But, like, the range masking, because I'm a huge luminosity mask nerd, and so one of the questions I get asked all the time is like, yeah, but, you know, Lightroom's got range masking. And I'm like, yeah, it does. It's kind of like it's like trying to carve with a sledgehammer. You know, it's it's like close to the tool, but not quite the tool. And you don't have much um, flexibility or power over it. So if everything in Lightroom is getting close to being good enough, but it's just not. And there's just so much that you can do in Photoshop that you'll never be able to do in Lightroom. They probably make it that way, honestly, mm-hmm. so that you have to get both. Yeah, there you go. And, you know, it's a good business model because I use both. I use Lightroom to import and catalog and organize. And then when I have like portraits and stuff, it's fine for that. But then when I have my landscape photography, I need Photoshop because once you get used to the amount of control and, you know, the, uh, the just selections in general, working with selections. If you had to pick one thing and working with layers in Photoshop, once you get used to that, everything else just seems archaic. And it's like, I can't believe people edit this way. But, and, but it's, it becomes impossible to backtrack and start using something where you don't have that power. Hey, I just want to pause real quick to talk about today's sponsor for the podcast, and that's Nature Photographers Network. You can go to naturephotographers.network and sign up for a yearly membership for $49, just $49 for an entire year, and you can get 10% off of that using the code LPS10. With that, you get access to tons of professional photographers, ask me anything, image critiques, uh, weekly and monthly challenges. You have so many things at your fingertips for you to improve your photography on that others don't without their membership. So you want to get out on this. It's $49 a year. Again, you can go to naturephotographers.network, sign up for a year, and you can actually get 10% off in the checkout process when you enter the code LPS10 during checkout and get 10% off of that just $49 already and get access to so many things that are going to help you level up your photography. Let's get back to our discussion with Nick. You mentioned luminosity masking. That That's where I was going to go next. And, and so thank you for leading me that direction. When you, well, let me ask it this way. Why are you so bullish on luminosity masking? Just because it's better in every way. <laughs> Because no. it's better, bro. <laughs> it's better, bro. Um, so yeah, l- luminosity masks. Like, okay, so what makes Photoshop Photoshop is the fact that you can work with layers, you can have layer masks, and you can have selections. So when you're working with a selection, you can be very particular over like, okay, I want to brighten, but I want to brighten this rock, only this rock, nothing else, right? And you can make a selection of that rock. And then you can refine the selection of that rock so it's absolutely perfect. Now, with luminosity mass, it's like you can use it in every bit of a local way, meaning, okay, I'm going to brighten this rock. But with a luminosity mask, you can only brighten, you can select to only brighten the highlights in that rock. So you can have affect not only the area, but also only the tones. And you can adjust that in infinite infinite number of ways 
to where like it's not only the area, it's not only the tones, but it's only the warm tones or it's only the shadow cool tones or or any combination that you can think of. Like, okay, I'm going to darken the sky, but I'm only going to darken the blue parts of the sky. I'm going to leave the red parts of the sky alone and I'm going to make a selection of the shadow areas of the clouds and darken those a little bit. And I'm going to limit that all of those adjustments to only the sky by making uh, making a selection of that sky and throwing it inside a folder. That way you're masking a luminosity mask and you can also paint through luminosity masks and use them like luminosity selections. So it's like this stencil where the, the paint is only going to go where you choose to paint, but it's also going to only go into the tones that are selected. So, I mean, it's, it's infinite what you can do with them. And that's why I'm so bullish on it is because once you learn it, then, then this light bulb goes off and you're like, oh my God, so much is possible. And I'm going to be a good photographer someday <laughs> because like I always push people towards learning, learning that stuff because it's the best and it's the most powerful rather than just saying, well, here's top five tips on how you need to learn these three tools in Lightroom because that's easy. You can always learn those four tools in Lightroom and you, you'll be okay. Or you can, you know, dedicate, you know, six months of your life. And, and learn something difficult that'll actually make you better and you'll keep growing in that direction. Or you can use this like a little, you know, it's like, it's like presets. It's like, you know, here, here's, a, here's a little thing that you can learn and you'll get a little bit better. And then once you're ready, I'll give you another little thing and you just kind of hop from island to island, but you never actually get better because they're just islands. But once you learn a concept or, you know, a set of techniques, the sky becomes a limit because your knowledge is only going to grow in that area. And then you'll learn all the things that are possible because you know that skill set. Yeah, no, I, I think Duncan, whose comment is up on the screen right now, said it great. Lightroom was made simple and then got complicated. Photoshop was complicated and you have to learn how to make it simple for so you. So true. I, so true. I mean, it's that's well a said. great that's a great breakdown and I'm, I'm going to steal that from Duncan and actually use it in some of my tutorials. Yeah. Courses. You should have copyrighted that Duncan. You screwed yeah. up. <laughs> it's mine now. Yeah. But that, that's the thing is like Photoshop. Part of what makes it not intuitive for photographers is the fact that it's not just for photographers. It's for all kinds of, you know, art creators and developers and like you can do so much in Photoshop that is completely not relevant to what we do that it seems cluttery. So a big part of it is you only learn the stuff that is actually applicable to you and what you do with it. And then you can lay it out in a way to where you don't have to look at all that other crap because the other stuff just gets in the way and slows you down. But when you have like your seven things that you do or seven things that you know how to do um, and it's all just right there, not only can you have that stuff laid out, but you can also like things that you do often, you can set to an action. So like, you know, I do an Orton effect, almost every image I do. So I can create an action where I just click a button and it does my Nick page, special, magical, ethereal look in like one step, even though it's actually like five steps and it becomes even more of a time saver. And what's cool about Photoshop, because we're talking about why it's better, is the fact that like if you overdo something, you can see all your layers and, you, and someday you can save it, save all your layers, somebody orders a print of it, and then you come back and look at it and you're like, my God, that's awful. And you can be like, okay, let's, let's back off this Orton effect because apparently the Orton effect was a big deal back in the 2000s and, you know, and back off all of the things that you screwed up and because you worked non-destructively with smart objects and all of these things, you can go back and, okay, let's, let's warm up this color temperature a little bit. Maybe it doesn't have to be quite that blue. And you can do all of these things. And then you can just fade out some of the things that you overdid. Like, okay, we added too much of this. Let's just drop the opacity of that layer a little bit. And suddenly everything's good again. But like once, once you get used to being able to do that, and then you go back to Lightroom and you just have, you bring up your adjustment adjustment brush pins and you just got these little dots all over and you don't know what each one of them did and you click on that one you're like and you can't it's not nearly as good it's not nearly as um yeah it's just not as good in summary it's just better bro it's just mm -hmm. better so we've talked about 
kind of the the idea that photography, the death of photography. Um, I, I do want to keep going down that route a little bit just because I, I think it's a really interesting idea. I think, let me ask you this, should photography kind of die to some people? Uh, and, and the reason that I ask that is because a lot of people chase photography, chase icons, chase specific photographs, chase specific weather patterns, but they don't internally like love it. They don't have that same feeling anymore of when they began. Should it die to them or should they just get back to the basics uh, of what they were doing when they started? Well, I think it's only a matter of time before it does die to them. Because if you lose lose touch with why you enjoy it in the first place, um, you're not going to enjoy it and you're not going to do it. And, you know, for a while I was worried that I was that person. But then it, all it really took was me reevaluating like, OK, what what was it that excited me so much during this time period or whatever? And so now I understand that the reason I'm not into photography all the time is because I don't I don't get the conditions that excite me all the time. So I'm not excited about it all the time. And that's OK. Because you can't do the same thing all the time and be fulfilled. Um, I think that there's a lot of people that don't do it for reasons that are going to be fulfilling long term. And it's going to die to those people. And you, you might see like as especially as times change and social media changes, you know, uh, you know, now that. For example, Instagram is becoming more video centric than it once was. I think that there's going to be kind of a, a move away from uh, photography simply because TikTok's the new thing, bro. Like, how are you going to be big without like a, a 15 second dance clip? Like, you're just not. And I think that there's going to be a lot of people that that we're kind of approaching photography from a little bit more like I'm doing it because it's cool aspect those people are going to move away from it and they're gonna start doing their little 15 second like lip sync videos over some something oh man i don't understand humans but you know what i mean like they, there's a lot of people that do things because they're popular and they're cool not because they actually enjoy doing it they're just kind of throwing stuff against the wall seeing what they're into and like they give that a try and then they realize eh, i don't really like that anymore because that's not cool anymore. And I'm not getting the social interaction that I once did. So I'm moving on. Then there's the other people that, you know, they, they find an actual outlet of some kind with photography, the people that find some kind of deeper emotional connection to it are going to stick with it because it becomes part of who they are. You don't have, but I will say that you don't have to be the, the super, philosophical, deep thinking, deep feeling person in order to connect with photography. Cause you can tell by listening to me talk that I'm not that person. I enjoy doing photography because it's time spent. It's time spent focusing on what I enjoy and what I love. And anytime you can spend time where all you're thinking about are the positives in life, like, Oh, I love I love that big cloud up there. And oh, look at that. Look at that owl. That owl is awesome. And like, you know, looking at all of these things that you like and you enjoy and you're hyper focused on that, you're just happier rather than walking through life of being like, I hate that. And I hate this person and I hate politics and I hate all of these things. Like when you spend time doing that, you're a miserable person. And it's really not much more complicated than that. If you spend time thinking about what you love and doing what you love, you're going to be happier. And for that reason, photography is always going to be a thing. And it's always going to be an important part of being, you know, human, because, you know, I think that all people are creative in some way. Some people are more, you know, physically creative, like they like to build things, they like to build houses and build decks and lay concrete and build, you know, build basketball pads or whatever it is. Some people fulfill that creative need by physically building things. Other people are more, you know, they paint. Some people take photos. Some people write songs. Everybody's creative in some way. It's an important part of being human. I don't know where I was going with this, but there you go. 
It was a good, basically what you were saying was look for the new TikTok channel from Nick Page. Yeah, absolutely, bro. He's got it'll the moves. Be, it'll be called Sick Tones. Sick, Sick Tones. Tones. 20, coming to a, coming to a screen near you. Yep. <laughs> well, you alluded to a time in which you thought that it had died to you. How did you pull yourself out of that? Well, I mean, sometimes you... You learn more from failures than you do from successes, right? And sometimes when you go out and you go on a photo trip or you go on a photo outing that you expect to be like, you know, this great thing that you've really been looking forward to. And then you go out and, and it's just kind of meh when you're out there. It, it makes you ask some questions like, okay, that was supposed to really be fulfilling and make me happy. Why am I not happy? And I had a few of those experiences where like I would go to, you know, places that I used to love to shoot and I know that I, I enjoy being there, but for some reason it wasn't creatively fulfilling to me. It, it meant that I had to ask myself, well, why is it that I don't like photography anymore? And the, the, the truthful answer was that like, you know, some of those locations that are very much location centric. Like, let's say a waterfall. There's a particular waterfall that I love to go to, and I go to that waterfall. You go there maybe five times, for, and you, you get all the different variations that you can possibly think of. Then what? You know, there's only so much that you can do with a waterfall because there's no changing element, really. Maybe you can go once in the fall, once in the spring, once in the winter time when it's like snowy and then you can shoot it from all the different vantage points and all the, think of all the different ways that you can include, you know, include a little bit more of this tree trunk, or maybe I'll just shoot just the water. But eventually there comes a time where it's like, dude, I can't do anything new here. And it's just a waterfall and there's nothing changing, not, not enough. And I, I hadn't really realized that I'm not, location centric that locations i'm not a landscape photographer i'm more of a weather photographer and that's also why i love seascapes is because there's a, there's a changing element there there's that sense of moment at a waterfall there's not really a sense of moment unless a kayaker goes off of it or like a fish jumps or something you know bird flies through the scene those are those are moments and they don't happen really in waterfalls but when you go to like a, a photograph a seascape Every single wave that comes towards your camera is completely different. And so you can set, you can go to the same beach that you, you've been to a million times before, set up with a composition, and you can sit there and shoot this particular composition, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. And you don't even notice times passing because every single water, a water movement, every frame is different. You're like, well, okay, well, what if I go a little longer with my shutter speed? And that looks, that's got different energy. And, and you're photographing moments because they're, it's a fleeting wave that's never going to happen exactly the same again. And then you combine that with the whatever the weather happens to be doing. Those are two different variables that are never going to line up exactly the same way twice. And so suddenly that far more, far more appealing to me, far more fulfilling, far more entertaining. And just simply because of those variables. And so that was kind of what I discovered is that like, I just had to do some soul searching on like, why do I like this? But I don't like that. And once you, once you realize that, okay, I, this is actually quite fulfilling to me. And I don't even care if I get a good photo here because it's fun. And I like watching the water movement or I like being around, you know, big storms where I feel like this tiny little speck of a human and nature is this big, impressive thing. When you, when, if I'll be happier, if I put myself in those situations, because this is what I actually love rather than just a pretty place because I like pretty places, but I don't necessarily like taking photos of the same pretty place over and over and over because it starts to just feel redundant and, and there's no variable there and there's not really much of a challenge there either because there's no, there's no desire. There's no uh, need to be there during an inter a particular moment. You can just show up on a Tuesday, take your photo and it's going to look like every other photo that's ever been taken there maybe the composition will be slightly different. So that's the, those variables and those things that are out of my control. That's, that's what I've discovered that I really love. That can take a long time to just, it's easier to say it in, you know, a two minute answer, five minute answer. How long 
like years even did it take you to figure that out that you were a photographer who doesn't like places but but is more of a chaser of a fleeting moment i would say it's it's been something that i've slowly been realizing over the past like three years something like that um and it wasn't really until i started spending a bit more time chasing those storms and like putting myself in those situations because it's a it's a very obvious difference in my mindset when like there's a storm rolling in and lights happening and I have to like try to find a composition. Suddenly my eyes get big and I'm fully engaged. That never happens when I'm going to a waterfall that I've been to before, or, you know, going to something that like, nah, the weather's okay. You know, and like, I'm going to stand on that hill and take a picture of this other hill like that. There's nothing like engaging about that. But when you, when like you're, when you see, the planets start to align and you have like this closing window where like, I got to be in a good place when this happens or else like, I'm going to miss it. Like then you start to get fully engaged and then like, it's, you know, it's a challenging shooting situation. So I have to like, make sure that I nail this because you know, I've only got this amount of time and like eyes get big pupils dilate and suddenly you're engaged. And I hadn't experienced that with myself in a very long time until like I went, you know, storm chasing and it wasn't even necessarily like the big storms, like, you know, down in the lower plains. For me, I probably enjoyed monsoon season in Arizona more simply because there were compositions to be had. They have all this beautiful cacti everywhere. And that makes for this beautiful silhouette when you have a Sararo cactus up against the sky for these, you know, rainbows, unicorns and lightning bolts falling out of the sky. Like it suddenly it gets really entertaining when you have both composition and conditions. And that's, that's what I love. Ask the question just because like people can look at, at what you've done in photography. People can look at like my career in photography. People can look at, you know, Alex Noriega, some, somebody like that and say, well, they're really good. Uh, I'll never get that good. And it's easy for somebody to say that, but like, it took me probably 11 and a half years to figure out what I loved about photography and what I wanted to get better at and, and why I wanted to get better at. And I've been shooting for 12 and a half years. So it's only in the last year that I've really figured all of that out and, and trying to do mm -hmm. something like that. So I, I think when somebody looks at like you as a photographer, it, it's hard for them to have that perspective have you had moments like that when oh, yeah. you were looking at some of your favorite photographers well dude i still i still feel that way like when i look at the work of you know even though i consider him a friend michael shane bloom's work still blows me away like i don't tell it to his face when we're hanging out but like you know i worship the dude a little bit just because his photography is always so consistently good and it and that's the funny thing is like when you when you meet some of your photography heroes and you go out and you shoot with them and then you like especially michael in this situation where like we're out shooting together and and i look over at him and he just looks like he's not doing anything i'm like are you gonna shoot this this is beautiful condition and he's like cool man yeah that's real nice it's pretty and, and he doesn't look like he's doing anything and then you know the following day or maybe that night like he posts something from that shoot and you're like what the hell? Like you didn't look like you were even trying and look, look at this. And so the, the thing is, is that there's always, that never stops being those people that you look up to. And, and that's a good thing because as long as there's people that you look up to and you see their work and you're like, man, I just love that. And I wish my photography had a bit more of that stuff going on. There's, there's always, as long as that's still happening, there's always that opportunity for boiling it down. Like, okay, that speaks to me. Why? And then you break it down and you're like, okay, well, I, you know, that just the, the overall contrast range of this, his photography is just so spot on and so beautiful. And like, and then you can like kind of bring up like one of their images and then bring up one of yours. That's similar in, in, you know, in either in subject or in style and you can kind of boil down like, okay, why does, why do I like this better than I like this? And like I said, with every, every failure comes opportunity for growth. And as soon as you stop having those failures, your growth slows down. So as long as you 
as long as you still feel discontent with your photography, you're going, you're continuing to grow. You're a success, man. And it's, it's, it's those times when you look at your photography and you're like, that's as good as it can be. Like I nailed it. That's when you stop to grow, stop growing. So, and growing in photography or in any other pursuit is, is the fun part. You know, it's journey before destination. And from, there's another quote that nobody will get. Um, journey before destination, the journey of getting better at something is the fun part. The destination is a letdown most times. Like it's, it's great to be a great photographer, whoop de doo but, but like getting better at photography, that's the fun part. And getting better at anything is the fun part because you look at yourself, you see that little bit of growth and you give yourself a little pat on the back. Like, okay, you got better at that one thing. Now we need to work on these other 10. Um, and any, any photographer that you look up to and you see that, di that difference between their work and your work and you like their work better, that's an opportunity for growth. And you should embrace that because it's awesome. Yeah. And I, I used to like, get angry about it right like i used to see somebody other somebody else's photo and i'm like well why can't i do that but like you brought up shane bloom i went to shoot this the sand dunes when we were all out in death valley with him and he he literally you described it perfectly <laughs> it like he was just like anything <laughs> he was just standing on top of a dune like looking around and i would like take a picture and look up at him he'd be doing the same thing this went on for an hour and then I posted one of my photo, like my favorite photo from that evening. And he messaged me and he was like, you know, is, is that the one you got from, from that night? And I was like, yeah. And the next day he posts his and I was like, what the heck, dude? Like, why you got to <laughs> do that to me? But, <laughs> right. But now yeah. I see it as, like you said, it's a growing experience. And, and I, I search for light that I don't necessarily see. Like I might take the initial shot, but then I search for the light that I've seen other people create. And I'm like, how did they do that? And the questions that I ask myself are then those growth periods that, yeah. that help me grow as a photographer. And the, the beautiful part of photography is that it's not a team sport, you know, and it's not something that you have to like invest you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in a college education to really perfect. Like the only thing that really holds us back as photographers is just our ourselves. The amount of time we we're willing to dedicate to it, whether it's like getting used to our camera and getting used to the camera settings, the act of shooting or the post-processing or just our ability to, you know, finely tune our eye. All of that can pretty much be done like whenever we feel like it. When I first got into photography, I, I didn't watch television for a long time. I, I watched tutorials because that was my idea of a good time, you know, and the only thing that can hold you back in something like this is yourself because you don't have to be smart. You don't have to be tall or strong or fast or good looking to be good at photography. You just have to put in some time. And the, the difference between those people that we look up to and are really inspired by, in my opinion, the only difference is the amount of effort that they've put into getting better. Um, uh, there's a book called The Talent Myth, and I, I'm very much a, a believer in the fact that there, it, there, there are physical characteristics that can make some people better at some things than others, especially in sports and things like that, or math. <laughs> but, but, but when it comes to photography, like there's really not. Like you don't have to, you don't have to be good at math to be a good photographer. You don't have to be fast, tall, or strong. You just have to pour, pour in some time and then, you know, and then constantly be in this, this stage where you like evaluate your work, look at work that you like better, and then evaluate the two and the differences. And you can work on your shortcomings. Like some people are very technically minded, like where they pick up the camera settings and all of the all the menu systems and they pick up that stuff really easily and then they get out to into a scene and they're just like um, i don't see a composition here but then there's the other people that like are just gravitate towards the compositional and the and the creative side and they're really good at that and they just suck with menu systems and camera settings and like because they're not interested in that we can always work on our shortcomings because it's usually one or the other. We're either technically minded, but we struggle with creativity, or we're creatively minded and we struggle with the technical. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Let's wrap up with this. You just talked about growth periods, what some people are great at, what some people aren't. Let's take it. Where, where are you going with your growth period in photography at, right now and maybe into the next couple of years? And, and where do you see the next evolution of your photography coming from? That's a hard one because I'm not forward thinking at all. I, <laughs> I just wing everything. Um, you know, with my photography, like I, I, like I said, I'm really getting into I've been taking meteorological classes and, you know, I'm a certified storm spot, sky worn storm spotter now. And I foresee that kind of stuff being more and more important to me. And I don't want it to be just be like, you know, here's a wide angle landscape with a big epic sky. I want it to actually be refined and really well done and eventually, hopefully, you know, unique and and its own thing. So but I want to I definitely want to put myself in those kind of shooting situations more that way. You know, I can kind of grow past the part where it's like, okay, here's a cactus, here's a cool sky, boom, take it together. You know, I want to grow past that and see what happens. And what that means, I don't really know. Maybe it's a lot more time lapse, maybe something far more creative that I can't envision right now. But the more I know that I'm happiest when I'm shooting that stuff. And I plan on putting myself in those situations to the point where I don't feel obligated to take the, the obvious easy photos anymore, I can start to be more creative and grow past the first obvious part of it. And what that means, I don't know. But I don't want to put any preconceived notions on myself. Yeah, final question. I'm going to take one from the comment section. And I've been posting comment sections periodically. You even got a shout out from mm -hmm. Bree Stockwell for people to go buy your tutorials. Uh, I appreciate um, that. Kevin asks, uh, we talked about Mike Mejuel. Um, <clears throat> he's a very smart person, but I'm sure he doesn't want the 50 people who are watching live to go and send him an email and be like, hey, take me out weather chasing, unless they pay for his workshop. <laughs> right, right. Uh, he has any introductory resources you recommend for starting to be able to read weather forecasts for photography? It's a good question. Um, so the, the classes that I took were actually through NOAA. And if you just do a search for Noah Skywarn, um, it, it, you can get your kind of foot in the door with like the the Skywarn storm spotting stuff. And part of that is actually learning about convective convective storms and what a cumulus nimbus is and all of that stuff. Um, but also, there there's so much like anything. There's so much good stuff on YouTube, and pretty much any. Anything you want to learn, you can find on YouTube, including like understanding the anatomy of a storm. And from a photography point of view, a lot of it is a lot of it is knowing which which side of the storm you want to focus on. There's there's actually a guy. Oh, my God. I got to remember his name. Um, there's a guy on YouTube. He's Pressure's on. <laughs> He's on Texas. Uh, uh, P Pico. Oh, what is his name? Just do a search for uh, Texas, Texas storm photography, and then enter a P. <laughs> I'm pretty sure his name starts with the P. There's the how it how uh, it's probably like a G. No, no, it's it's definitely a P, bro. It's like somebody Pico, says Pico Hank. Petra. Pico Hank. Pico Hanks. I want to say it's Pico Hanks. Not Petra. Definitely not Petra. It's P okay. Pico. Pico Hanks. Pico. Anyways, he's um, he's really knowledgeable. He's got a lot of he's got a lot of vlog type stuff, but his educational stuff is really, really cool. And he talks about different types of lightning and different types of storms and the anatomy of a storm, but he's also a really good photographer. And so he's a great resource. I'm pretty sure it's Pico Hanks. I'm not positive though. Well, there you go. Picos. Well, maybe it's Picos Hanks. Yeah, maybe. Greg Fox. Thank you. Um, summing up, where can people go to find out more about you? We alluded to your tutorials. Uh, yeah. Throw out a, a, a little rope for yeah. that too. Well, so I teach a lot of post-processing stuff. As you can tell, I'm kind of uh, um, 
uh, I don't know, particular about post-processing. You can find all of that in my, my workshops and my photography, which is probably the main reason to go to my website. It's just nickpagephotography.com. Also got a YouTube channel with a bunch, a huge backlog, back, back catalog that you can do th look through there. I've got some, uh, you know, photographing lightning tutorials and those kinds of things if you're interested in that stuff. Um, or you can just Google me. But yeah, is YouTube and my website probably the best places to find me. Several comments saying Picos Hank. Yeah, Picos Hank. That's him. It's not there Pico. You go. It's Picos. And he's <laughs> and what's great about his stuff is like he's a very a, a very good photographer, but he's really knowledgeable and he shares all that knowledge uh, about storm anatomy and all that stuff. So you know his vlogs are okay, but mostly it's like the the, the more um, educational stuff that i really like from him so great use source <laughs> that's a that's a new that should be a good term like it's a youtube resource it's a use source a use source yeah you need to patent that i need to patent it <laughs> well i'm david johnston with that patent warning uh on behalf of nick page thank you guys so much for watching thank you for listening to the podcast later on and those watching live uh, thank you so much for joining us, Nick, and providing us with so many good resources. Happy to be here. Thanks, man.